Well, certainly a precious time, and uh, some of the staff was trying to talk me into letting them take bets on whether Tim was going to cry or not. And I told him to go ahead because that's not really gambling. <laughs> He's going to do it. But, um, you know, people ask the question, now what hinders me from being baptized? I'd like to be baptized. And someone asked in the Bible that question to a, one of the deacons, one of the apostles, I should say, and uh, to Philip. And his answer was, first believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, and then you can follow the Lord in believer's baptism. And at the end of the service, even though this is not going to be an evangelistic message, at the end of the service, I want to give you an opportunity to do just that, to receive Christ into your heart. But I'd like for us to take the Bible, and I'd like for us to continue our series of messages on why not Jesus, and as we turn to Colossians chapter 3, and we're nearing the end of this book. In fact, we'll finish it up next week. And the basic problem, social problem that this addresses is the same social problem that we have today in America and all throughout the world, and that is the thing plaguing society is the inability for us to get along with one another. Relationships, they're always difficult. And without God's guidance, here's the message, without God's guidance, the Lordship of Christ, without the instruction of the Word of God, we're not going to have the wisdom to know how to handle situations and handle relationships or the desire sometimes to even do that, the power to do it. None of those things are going to be there for us unless we look to Christ as the supreme being of our life, the master controller of our life, and the Word of God for instruction. Now, in this passage, you'll find that there are three different relationships that Paul addresses as he applies the wisdom of God to our life. One is the marriage relationship between husband and wife. Then there's the parent-child relationship. And finally, the slaves, masters, or slaves and bosses that we'll apply next week. And as we look at these three relationships, unlike the instruction that you're going to get from a self-help book in the bookstore on Amazon, unlike them, the Bible says these are reciprocal relationships. There's a give and take. There's a responsibility in each one of them. And this morning, because it's not only the first one that we list in this uh, passage, but also the foundational one, we want to look at marriage. Because without a good marriage, you can have everything else in the life if you want. If your marriage is going south or it's sour in some way, then life is not going to be good for you. You're just going to be, you're going to have a, a misery index, we'll say, in your life. Now, many things over the years have changed about marriage. For example, in the last 40, 50 years, four, four basic things, divorce rate has doubled. Births to unwed or unmarried parents are up 50%. One-fourth of couples cohabitate, cohabitate before marriage, and then biblical instruction is basically rejected, is ridiculed. I mean, basically, if you are part of a church convention that uh, sides on the side of family and what the Bible says about the family, you're, you're really ridiculed for that. And if you're a politician, many people will not vote for you. It's culturally unacceptable to do that. Now, in this, three attitudes basically therefore have changed. One is that the feeling, among young people at least, that successful marriages or marriages that don't fail, they stay together, are basically unhappy. 
And we find out, in statistically speaking, that's just simply not true. The other feeling is, is that in order to get married and have successful marriage, you first must live together first. But statistics will tell us, depending on what statistic you read, basically, if you live together before marriage, there's a 100 to 200 percent chance of ending up in divorce, more so than you would if you were not cohabitating together. And thirdly, you're better off to remain single. People feel that way, but it's simply not true. Now, there's some people that are called to be celibate. Some are called to be single, and they're happy doing so, but most people are not. It's ma- they're made for marriage. In fact, the number one group of people that cause more crime than any other group of people in America today, and, and probably the world, are single men. There's something about being married that changes a man and challenges a man to be the person that he really needs to be. And so as we're looking at this, I, I was looking back at some notes uh, back in the 1980s. I know that really dates me back there a long way, some of that long before some of you were even born. But in the 1980s, I was preaching on marriage. In fact, I was preaching on marriage before I got married. Now, I threw all those sermons away, you know, once I got married, but that's how long I've been preaching on this thing. And so, I look back at some of my old sermons, and here were some, a couple of statistics that came up. When couples both, both attended church on a regular basis, divorce was cut in half. Now, there was not nearly as many divorces in the 1980s as there are today, but even in the 1980s, they were cut in half. But listen to this one. Listen to this one. When both attended church, both had personal devotions with God on a daily basis, and they prayed together, divorce happened in one out of 1,102 marriages. So something was working back then that is simply not working today. And so you say, well, even before you get into all this, Pastor, and all this passage that you're going to look at, you've got an uphill climb with me. And you may be saying that, but I want to ask you a question, not about your marriage necessarily, but about your marriage, but more specifically, marriage in general. How is that all this working out for us when we ignore the Word of God? How is that really working out for us? And so we look at this and we find um, several things. In fact, this is the shortest passage probably of any of Paul's writings or Peter's writings even about marriage. He just breezes over. It gives us some instructions, simple instruction, one, two, three, four, basically. So what we want to do is look at that simple instruction, but then to better understand it, we want to look at the deeper explanation from the scripture. And then finally, we want to come back to this passage and we're going to apply it to our everyday life. Okay, let's do that. First of all, the simple instruction, look with me in chapter three and verse 18. He says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents and everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Four verses, that's it. And so we look at this instruction and we find out, first of all, it says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting the Lord. So we see some instruction here for wives. There's not a lot in the Bible instruction-wise about marriage and about parenting. There is some, and it's to be followed, but there's not a lot. But every passage that we talk about in 1 Peter, in Ephesians, and the book of Colossians, 
would all, all say this same thing. Now, what is it coming from? Well, the word submit means to voluntarily place yourself on the authority of another person. The idea of it, as Bill Gothard was saying in his basic youth conflicts, is like umbrellas of protection. You have the children, then you have another umbrella of the mother, then you have the father, the husband, and then finally you have God under the big, big umbrella. To come out from under that umbrella is rebellion against the authority that's, that God has placed over your life. And oftentimes that will result, by the way, in some sort of activity in your life that you don't want. The Bible says to rebel is like the sin under witchcraft. And of course, when you do that, you open yourself up to the power and realm of the devil. And so we don't want that. So look back with me and we'll have to ex- you just have to excuse our sound system. We've got somebody out there blowing because our air conditioner is, is really, no, I'm just I don't know what's wrong with it. But I can't even figure out what's wrong with me most of the time. So anyway, in verse 15, it says, it gives us instruction of chapter 3. Let the peace of God rule in your heart. Verse 16, let the word of God dwell in you richly. Verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so as we look at this, everything's coming down to an application. And the Bible is teaching us that Christ is supreme. Colossians says the reason we want to follow Christ is it makes sense. He's supreme. He's the Lord, the creator, the sustainer, the provider of the universe. He's the savior of the world. He died on the cross for your sins. Now let's apply this to our life. And he gives us some instruction. He's basically saying this, in order to be saved, you must submit to the authority of God. Surrender your heart to the Lord and surrender to his lordship. If, therefore, you cannot obey the authorities in life that you can see, and this is a quote or paraphrase from the Bible, then how in the world can you expect to submit to the lordship of someone that you cannot see? God has placed human authorities over us as an example, as a practice, as an illustration, but also for for protection in our life. And the authorities are listed here. Some of them are listed in this whole passage. It begins with the wives and husbands. So as we look at this, it has something that has to do with humility and surrender to the Lord. Now, somebody says, well, this is old-fashioned. Man, it's just cultural. That's all it is. And you can't pay attention to all the cultural stuff. Well, let me ask you this. In the next verse, when it says, husbands, love your wives, are you arguing with that? So husbands shouldn't love their wives? What about the first, first Corinthians chapter 13? where Paul talks about the love chapter of the Bible. He says the greatest of these is love. What about Romans and Galatians when he talks about grace? Did you realize that if it wasn't for the writings of Paul, we would have no doctrine whatsoever of grace? We, we wouldn't understand grace. Now, we would experience it if we received Christ, but we wouldn't know really what it was. And so for you and I to look in the Bible, we can't just simply look at the red letters of Jesus and say, well, that's the word of God. The Bible says that all of the Bible is the Word of God and was given to us for a reason. And now God is trying to tell us, here's how you have a successful marriage. Notice it says, fitting unto the Lord. That is appointed. Authority that is placed over our life. Voluntarily, yes, we surrender. 
We surrender to the, voluntarily to the Lordship of Jesus Christ when we are saved. We voluntarily place ourselves under the authority of an employee or employer when we're an employee. It's a voluntary thing, but it's a necessary thing to play the role and responsibility. So what does it say about the husbands? Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, this word love comes from a Greek word, agape, and it means to love with, uh, with a sacrificial love. Putting your spouse ahead of, every, uh, of yourself, putting your family ahead of yourself. And so husbands are to love their wives. And in the New Testament, this was a new concept. The reason Paul and Peter began every time talking about the family with a wife, wives being submissive to your husband was, was a little bit less demanding than the word obey. We see this later when children obey your parents. That's a much stronger word. But in the New Testament times, women were to obey their husbands. Old Testament times, women to obey their husbands. So he's really introducing kind of a, a softer concept. But the idea of husbands loving your wives was totally foreign. That, that's not something that people did, much less put your family ahead of yourself. You say, well, it's sort of a cultural thing, but it's, it's not just a cultural thing. Listen, we talk about the Bible again, about the Bible being an eternal book. With the eternal book, society does change. And so therefore, as we've said before, the Bible is going to be in conflict with every culture. You know, we just think about America, and that's all we think about sometimes, even the second coming. You know, the, the signs of the second coming. You look in America. I've, I've done this for years. Look in America. You see all the signs coming up. Jesus is coming back any day. And I, I believe he could. I really do. But it's not just America, it's the entire world. So you've got a lot of things going on in the world today and a lot of different cultures. You've got thousands of cultures. So which culture should the Bible match up with? Our culture, India's culture, China's culture, South American, Brazilian culture? Which culture? And which culture within those countries do we line up with? You see, every time the Bible speaks, it is in conflict with every single culture at some point. Now, for example, in America, we love the passages about love. Jesus is love. You talk about Jesus. Most of the people outside the church, oh, Jesus is love. That's what I believe in, a loving Jesus. They love that part. They don't like the part about morals. They don't. You, you say, don't do this, don't do, oh, I don't like, that's just legalism or something. That's just old-fashioned. That's just cultural stuff. You can't possibly believe that. But on the other hand, the Muslim world Love, love that, loves that about the Bible. Now, this is not their Bible, but the, many of them have read it, and they would say, oh, I love the part about the morals. That agrees with me, but that whole thing about having a personal relationship with God, God's just too great. There's no way you can have a relationship with Him. All that love and forgiveness. Forgiveness is just not something they're about. They, it conflicts with them. So there's always going to be something. Notice it says in the next few words, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. There's a parent-child relationship here. The word techna is where it says all, it really means all children that living in your household, but particularly, I think, talking about small children growing up. It says that we are, that children are to obey their parents. Now, I think Tim Dix is right when you get older and one of your parents have a check in their spirit, don't have a peace about something in your life, especially if they, they don't usually butt in at all, and they're telling you something, you better pay attention to it. 
God could be still speaking through them. But this is talking specifically about growing up in the home. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children that lest they become discouraged. Let me just say this. I'm going to move on because I need to get down to Genesis here very quickly. I was uh, visiting with some relatives uh, this past uh, week or week before last when I first left for vacation. And um, one of their teenage girls, uh, their teenage girl, we're talking to them and she's gone off to college now. And she says, you know, Dad, the problem with Generation Z, which she's a part of, and the millennials is that our parents never wanted to hurt our feelings. I thought, wow, I never thought about it that way before. But think about it. We're not disciplining them, sometimes harshly in times past. As a matter of fact, maybe your parents disciplined you so harshly that it caused an embittered spirit. So we've swung the, the other way. I know there's a lack of discipline, a lack of saying no, a lack of hurting someone's feelings, you might say. So we look at this and we say to ourselves, well, what does the Bible really teach here? Well, anytime you look at a doctrine in the Bible, you need to go back and see where it was first mentioned, which many of you know is in the book of Genesis. The very first two chapters of the Bible talk about and give us a deeper explanation about this whole idea of marriage and what it was for. When you find out, when we find out what it was for, then we can know our role and responsibility a little bit better. We can understand it, therefore we can do it. I want you to see in this passage, Genesis 2, 18 through 24, five things, at least five, these, five things that God brought about marriage and what he had in mind and the need for it. Number one is companionship. Look with me in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Now, everywhere else in here, every time he created something, God said, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Suddenly, he said, it's not good for man to be alone. And did you know, I, I really believe Adam didn't even know he was alone at the time because God did something here in this passage that was very unusual. And I was always asking myself the question, why did he do that first? Well, he brought all the animals together, find out in the next few verses. And in verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens and to every beast in the field. But for Adam, it says, there was not found a helper fit for him. And so Adam's thinking to himself, look, I've got fellowship with God. I'm good. I'm okay. And uh, man, everything's great. But he starts naming the animals and names this one. And this one's a horse. And this one's an alligator. And this, you know, a dog. And he goes all through that. And they're all paired up. And there's a longing begins to be in his heart. Now, maybe some of you uh, young people, some of you single people, you think to yourself, you know, I'm not ready to get married, and probably you're not. But nevertheless, you start going to this wedding, and man, your friend, best friend got married. And you, you, <clears throat> how much they were in love with one another, and the wedding was so beautiful. Um, and then another friend gets married, and another one. And suddenly there's a desire that's built up in your heart to do the same. I believe that's what was happening with Adam. God was bringing him to that point, and he says, you need, you need a companion with you. Then I want you to notice there's a cooperation involved. It's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit or suitable for him. Now, this word helper is someone that God created to help Adam have dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowls of the air, as uh, stated in Genesis chapter 1. And he says, look, you, you need a helper. Now, this is the same word in Hebrew that you will find translated in the Greek 
to talk about the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit is our counselor, our helper. He, one come, comes alongside of us in, in the sense of the Holy Spirit. He comes actually inside of us to be a helper to us. And notice it says, it says a, one fit, uh, suitable. So spouses complete you. That's kind of what it's saying here. You're, you, have, you, you have a shortage of something. There's something kind of there, but it's kind of missing. And you need someone different in your life to help you in that. Not only have dominion, but also about yourself. We just mentioned single men being uh, the, one that, uh, the ones that commit most of the crime. You know, it's something when you, for example, you're in college and you have a roommate. And maybe you good friends with your roommate. But really, you know, you see all kinds of problems with your roommate, man. But you don't dress them. Why? It doesn't make that much difference to you. You know, hey, I can put up with this for six months, a year. I'll move out. You know, I, I, like, the, I like the person. But wow, you don't know whether you want to really risk your relationship by telling them some faults. But when you get married... It's different. I mean, you think to yourself, I'm going to accept my husband and uh, I'm going to accept my wife just for who she is, just for who he is, and you should. But you know that after a while, there's just so much you can take, right? I mean, really, you start looking and, wow, they need to change. Boy, if they don't change that, they're never going to get promoted. If they don't change that, we'll never be able to raise raise our kids right. So you bring certain things and attention, and maybe there's conflict Fights, you know, some arguments that take place. But there's things in each one of us, blind spots, that need to be revealed. And especially in those first several years of marriage, that's exactly what happens. So it's someone fit, someone suitable for us. Then there's the word completion. It says fit. It's just fit just right for you. Kind of like a mirror to help you. And they're like you. They're like you. We're more alike as men and women, then we are different, but we are different. You say, well, pastor, you know that's not politically correct to say that men and women are different. Well, let me just share this with you. Women can have, I know, bear with me. Women can have babies. Men can't. So there's a difference. Right? Do you agree with that? So what about science? You know, you can do this experiment and this experiment. I'm talking about in a natural way, that's the only thing that can happen. But men and women are different by and large, even with that, and we need to be. For example, women overall, all women, all men together, women speak twice as many words in a day than a man does. Okay? I mean, ladies, you get on the phone and you can talk a long time about about everything, maybe nothing, but maybe everything. Somebody calls me, another guy calls me up on the phone, another pastor, whatever, one of the church members. I'll, I'll say, hey, how's it going? What's going on? You know, and I'll say, what's up? And you say the same thing to me, guys. What's up? And I say, oh, I'm just calling just to chat. <laughs> Click. <laughs> you don't have time to chat. You want to know what's up. We call for a reason, for a purpose. And ladies, you know, men have already said all the words they can say in one day before they get home. 
In fact, guys, you know, ladies saying, you know, my, my husband used to listen to me and talk with me dating, and then once we got married, not so much. Listen, a guy does all of his talking before he gets married, and the last two words he can think of to say before he, has, he says, I don't have to say another word the rest of my life, is I do. And that's about it. Men and women are different in sensitivity. You can take a rock. Gary Smalley brings this out, I think, or John Trent brings out. He says, you know, you can say, take a rock and place it on the back of a rhinoceros, and he won't even feel it. You can take that same rock and place it on the back of a butterfly, and it'll crush it. Men, sometimes we talk to our wives like we talk to the guys at work. And they don't think anything about it at all. Man, it crushes your wife, that tone of voice. We're different, and it's a good thing that we're different. We need that difference in our life. Willard Harley, in a, in a book called His Needs, Her Needs, I invite you to buy that book. It's very old. It may not be in print anymore. I've gone over those five needs before in a, in a sermon 20 years ago. And basically, men have five needs according to his counseling experiences over a 20-year period. Women have five needs. Now, one, you, one of the things you notice when you look at these things side, side by side, none of them match. The number one need of a, a woman, you know, already know what it is, conversation. Not even on a man's radar. All five are different. And it's good that we can complement one another. Now, it, we have to work on it, don't we? And if we work on it, that means we're going to have to have a relationship. Anytime you work on a relationship, you're having a relationship. If you don't have to work on anything, it's easy just to sort of go by the wayside. Just whatever. Oh, we don't have to work on a thing. It's just kind of floating along. But notice there is a completion. Then there's continue. Continue, continue the human race. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. That's uh, down in verse 24. And hold fast to his wife. They two shall become one flesh. Sexual relationship for oneness and for intimacy and also to propagate the human race. Then, number five, is Christ himself. Not really mentioned in this verse, but in Ephesians 5.25, it tells us as husbands, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He said, that's a mystery here. But marriage, he says, is like Christ, a husband and wife is like Christ in the church. All through the book of Ephesians chapter 5, or at least the last part of that chapter. Several verses on the same thing, Christ and the church. In fact, our marriages, it says, ought to mirror and the lost world look at our marriage and say, oh, that must be like what the church is about. What is that? One divorce in 1,102 marriages when they're really following the Lord, really following him. Not lip service, not church membership, but really following the Lord. So how does this work out practically to us? I want to t turn back to um, Colossians chapter 3 and finish up the message in the next few minutes. First of all, again, the wife's role. Husband, wives, submit yourselves to your husband as unto the Lord. Again, it's not being trampled underfoot. It doesn't mean that you don't have a say in what's going on. It doesn't mean absolute either. I mean, there are things that your husband may ask you to do because he's not a believer, and he's asking you to do something that's against the Bible. It doesn't mean that. But your general attitude and your specific attitude it's whenever I can submit to my husband, I'm going to do that. And it's difficult. 
not only because of our society and what society says, but it's a challenge because a woman's number one need, by and large, is security. Man's number one need is significance. But a wife's is security. So listen to me very carefully. It's a picture here. Because we ask ourselves the question. You've got to be asking yourself this question. You've listened and watched here on, uh, maybe at home or here, week after week after week, why not follow Jesus? Why not follow Jesus? And you're still really not sold. Why? Well, because of security. I mean, if I give my heart to Jesus, he may ask me to do something I don't want to do. If I give my heart to Jesus, things may not work out like I've dreamed that they would work out. If I give my heart to Jesus and, and really maybe in some instances do nothing at all, Man, I might be the biggest fool in the world. It's, it's a security issue. Why doesn't, a, why doesn't a wife submit to her husband? Well, she needs security. How do I know he really has my best interest at heart? How do I know I can trust him? How do I know he loves me as Christ loved the church? In fact, the way he's treating me, I would say that's not true. And so it becomes very difficult for that to happen. But what if? You were to go to your husband and say, look, I've had my say. You know how I feel. But I know that you're a man of God. And I know that God's going to speak to you. And I know you're going to listen. And then you're going to make the right decision. And I'm going to back you up and never second guess you. How do you think your husband would respond? You say, well, pretty well. No, probably not. Not exactly. Not all the time. Now, he loves the last part about not second-guessing him. <laughs> that would be something new in all of his life. But that part about me listening to God, you're expecting me now to, have, to listen to God and to talk with God and to get God's wisdom in my life, read the Scriptures, get God's wisdom in my life, and make the right decision. You're putting all that on me. Yes. I don't have that kind of relationship. And the wife would say, well, look, let me help you out with that. Let me... Let me pray with you and we'll do it together. No. What you need to do is look at him right in the, in the face, right in the eye and say, well, you need to get that kind of relationship. That's the kind of relationship you need. Dear friends, when some of you ladies have, you remember this, you've gone to, you've quit work to raise children perhaps. Just give an example here. And you're not going to be able to work again until they go, all go back to school. That's your goal. Then the man all of a sudden thinks to himself, I gotta make all the living. What am I gonna do? I gotta get a promotion. I gotta do this. I gotta work harder. I gotta go. You're dependent totally upon him. And most men rise to the occasion and do everything they can to make a living for their family. And you admire them for doing that. By the way, that's, that's on the need basis of every man, every list admiration. He desires admiration from his wife and his children. And so, here he is. He's thinking to himself, man, you're dependent on me. I better get right with God. I better start following Jesus. Man, all of a sudden he realizes I'm responsible, according to the Bible. I'm responsible to God directly for my family. You know, it's like, it's like pastoring a church in a sense. I'm not, the, I'm not necessarily the most talented guy here. By the way, that's when the sound system went out last service is just boom, you know. But, um, but that's my role as a pastor. And when I stand before God and give an account for this church, he's not going to be asking every single member, well, why didn't y'all do this? Why didn't...? He's going to be looking to me. I'm responsible 
When a man thinks, I'm responsible for my family, he rises to the occasion, gets right with God, and starts following the Lord Jesus Christ. But if he doesn't have to, it's just easier to do my own thing. It's just easier. It's more passive, as Adam was passive even in the garden. It's a challenge. Challenge your husband to love you like Christ loved the church. And notice, that's his role. Follow Christ. Follow Christ not only for you men, but also for your family. Love, loving your wife, that whole new concept in the Scripture. Love your wife. Protect her. Provide for her. Prefer her against your own wishes. Be unselfish with your life. And treat her special. 1 Peter 3, 7, Peter says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Know her. Know her. Treat her special. I shared this uh, with the church maybe 15 years ago or so. I love the story, and I'll close with a couple of stories, and then I'll, I'll quit. But this story comes from Patricia McGeer and a story called Johnny Lingo's Eight Cow Wife. I'll read it to you. She illustrates well the unlimited power of viewing and treating someone as a priceless treasure. Johnny Lingo was a young man who lived on the island of Nurabande, not far from the island of Kinawata in the South Pacific. Johnny was one of the brightest, strongest, and richest men in the islands, but people shook their heads and smiled about the business deal he made with a man on Kinawata. It was customary among the people of these islands for a man to buy his wife from her father and the price being paid in cows. Two or three cows would buy an average wife. Four or five would fetch a highly satisfactory one. Yet for some reason, Johnny had paid the unheard of price of eight cows for a wife, Sarita, who was unattractive by any standards. As one fellow explained, it would be kindness to call her plain. She was skinny, she walked, excuse me, with shoulders hunched and her head ducked. She was scared of her own shadow. Why did Johnny Lingo pay eight cows, especially, especially for such a woman? Everyone figured Sarita's father had taken young Johnny for a ride, and that's why the islanders smiled any time they discussed the deal. Patricia McGeer finally met Johnny for herself and got the chance to ask about his eight-cow wife purchase of Sarita. She had assumed he had done it for his own vanity and reputation. At least she thought so until she saw Sarita. She was the most beautiful woman, she says, I have ever seen. The lift of her shoulders, the tilt of her chin, the sparkle of her eyes, all spelled a pride to which no one could deny her the right. Sarita was not the plain girl McGear had expected, and the explanation lay with Johnny Lingo. Do you ever think, he said, what it must mean to a woman to know her husband settled on the lowest price for which he could, could buy her? And then later, when the women talk, they boast of what their husbands paid for them. One says four cows, maybe another six. How does she feel then, the woman who was sold for one or two cows? This could not happen to my Sarita. Then you did this to make her, your wife happy, 
McGeer asked. I wanted Sarita to be happy, yes, but I wanted more than that. This is true, but many things can change a woman. Things that happen inside, things that happen outside. But the thing that matters most is what happens to herself on the inside. And Kitawana, Kinawana, Sarita believed she was worth nothing. Now she knows she's worth more than any other woman on the islands. Then you wanted, and he cut her off. I wanted to marry Sarita. I loved her and no other woman. But he said, I want an eight cow wife. Because Johnny Lingo considered Sarita to be worth eight cows, she became, began to see and present herself as an eight cow woman. Before Johnny entered her life, Sarita was shy, plain, island girl. After he placed incredible value upon her, she was transformed into a confident, attractive woman who knew she was worth more than any other woman on the island. Men, do you treat your wife like an eight-cow wife? You know, it goes both ways, doesn't it? Ladies, do you treat your husband like an eight-bull man? Valued? Because it does work both ways. One counselor tells a story in his book, and he said, um, this woman came in, she's going to divorce her husband. He said, well, how, how's he going to take that when you walk out on him? He says, I don't know if he'll even care that much. He said, well, i tell you what you do. You want to get revenge? He said, I'd love to get revenge on him. All the things he said to me, I want revenge. He said, you go back and you treat him like you did when you were first married. Admire him, brag on him, lift him up. And then, once he buys into all that, then you leave him and it'll break his heart. And she said, that is a wonderful idea. Well, two months later, he calls her back because he hadn't heard from her. And he said, well, did you get a divorce? She said, are you kidding? I married the most wonderful man in the world. He's treating me like a queen. Once she started treating him like the man she first loved, he returned that as well. An eight bull man and an eight cow woman. How are you treating your spouse? Why follow Jesus. Dear friends, you can make a resolution right now and say, I'm going to treat my wife like an eight-cow woman. And it won't last. Because God has placed commandments and rules and things in our life. You'll say, we can't do it, God. We just can't do it. And then he says, you can do it with my power in you. And without Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord of your life, you're not going to have the power and the desire to carry it through. So why not Jesus? Why have you waited all these weeks and saying, yeah, I need to follow Jesus. Yeah, I guess I need to. Maybe I'll wait to the end of the series where we're almost there. So the question is, why not follow Jesus? So I'm going to give you some challenges today. First of all, I'm going to ask you, if you're married today, speaking of those who are married, would you commit yourself to saying, I want to be the man I need to be. Whether I'm challenged or not, I'm going to get God's wisdom in my life, have Jesus Christ as Lord of my life, not just for me, but also for my family. Ladies, would you say, I'm going to commit my life to Christ. I'm going to do my husband right the way the Bible says do, even if he doesn't reciprocate. I'm going to do what I need to do with the Lord. And then if you never receive Jesus into your heart, I want to invite you to, to do that right now. You can 
by simply asking Jesus to forgive you of your sins, to come into your heart, and to make him Savior of your soul and Lord of your life. I don't invite you to do that even now as I pray. God, we thank you so much for the word of God. We thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us. And we thank you, Lord, for all that you've written in your word to give us instruction on what to do and how to do it. And God, we pray that you would give us the strength and power right now in our life. As we surrender to you as Lord, you would give us that power to do what we need to do. And then, God, I pray for those who need, to, need the Lord. I pray they would reach out to you right now and nail that down to say, I'm not really a follower of Christ. I'm a church member, but I'm not really a follower of Christ. And they would become that follower today by giving their heart to you. And we'll pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.